I decided ah, I'm not even gonna audition. I just want to take a break. I've been doing this nonstop since I was like 12. So I didn't, and the question was going to be like, see if I miss it. And I stopped doing it for a little while and I didn't miss it. So that was my answer right there. So I stopped pursuing theater at that point, and but I still did want to act in some form. I wanted to be creative, so I had heard about voiceovers. I didn't know much about it, uh, but I was curious. So I, at first, I was interested in animation voiceovers and character voices and things like, like that. I was always kind of a voice and speech nerd in college, and liked working like the the art of the spoken word. Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners, this is a really special treat because I think, well, we've had um, a fellow actor on before, Renee Lisiaga, but I'm bringing another actor to you all. So I always love going back to my theater roots. So I am joined with um, Michael Crouch, who is an audio award-winning actor based in New York City. His audiobook narration has earned multiple earphones awards. Okay, I have to ask him about what that means. Um, from Audiophile Magazine and Best of the Year listings from Booklist, School Library Journal, and Publishers Weekly. So thank you so much, Michael Crouch, for making time to talk with me here. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so for having me. of course. Well, I've heard your voice in many, many audiobooks um, that we featured here or are going to feature here. So maybe to start there as a case study could be helpful. So I've heard you in um, Micah Nemerever's These Violent Delights, PJ Vernon's Bathhouse. I'm pretty sure you read a section of Under the Rainbow by Celia Lasky. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, and you um, also are featured in Golden Boys, that just came out by uh, Phil Stamp Stamper or Stampick? Stamford. Stamford, thank you. Um, so, and I get to interview Phil and Celia Lasky soon. So I'm excited about oh, that. Hey. Yeah, yeah. So you've recorded though over 250 audiobooks. So I'm only mentioning <laughs> like maybe 120th of them. How did you first just get interested in doing voiceovers? Because that's such a special niche for an actor. Well, my background is in theater. I did uh, plays and musicals all through middle school and high school. And I went to college for it. I went to Ithaca College for musical theater. And um, near the end of college, I started to fall out of love with theater. I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to build a life around it anymore. Uh, that reality of pursuing your, you know, studying your craft and um, the reality of actually building a life around it, making a business out of it. I was like, oh, 
I don't know if I want to do all that. I don't know if I love it that much anymore. Uh, so I, I did a little summer stock after college. I moved to New York and um, I decided ah, I'm not even going to audition. I just want to take a break. I've been doing this nonstop since I was like 12. So I didn't. And the question was going to be like, see if I miss it. And I stopped doing it for a little while and I didn't miss it. So that was my answer right there. So I stopped pursuing theater at that point and, but I still did want to act in some form. I wanted to be creative. So I had heard about voiceovers. I didn't know much about it, uh, but I was curious. So I, at first I was interested in animation voiceovers and character voices and things like, like that. I was always kind of a voice and speech nerd in college and liked working like the, the art of the spoken word. Um, so I was like curious. So I got a book on the business, gave me an overview and it said that um, most people's gateway into voiceovers is the commercial world. So I took an intro to commercial voiceover class and that was my first step into that world. And uh, I liked it and it was, uh, it was uh, kind of just the process of being in the studio in front of the microphone was something I enjoyed and, and I still enjoy. And uh, it didn't really matter what type of script I had in front of me. I just like to be in the booth. Mm. So that was how I first got into this field. And I, I could go on and on about how I eventually got into audiobooks. Do you want me to keep going? Well, I mean, just to pause, I think... It's very interesting because even though I trained in musical theater, I actually, as a child, started with modeling classes. And in modeling classes, you actually do commercial acting, um, right? Um, like car sales or, well, probably not as a child. <laughs> that would be an interesting take. But, you know, um, Oshkosh Bagosh or whatever kind of clothing line. Um, and I was le recently listening to Melissa Joan Hart talk about that's how she actually started was as a child commercial actor. Um, and it's kind of interesting because it seems like you can traverse back and forth and you're kind of saying that you went into Ithaca, which has a very popular theater um, major and um, Side note, my grandmom was actually going to go there, but then didn't. Um, but, you know, that it's intriguing to me that you could, technically you could do both. Like, do you see that a lot? I mean, you're saying you don't really perform on the stage now, but do you see a lot of voice actors who are able to navigate both of these communities? Yeah, there are a lot of people who do both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it can be tricky though, for there are people who mainly want to do on camera and stage work and make a little extra money in voiceover. And that's a great idea, but the voiceover world is so saturated. If, if you're going to break in, you've got to really put a full time effort into it to get in the door and to keep working. 
um, you can't, most people can't just dabble in it and get a little extra dough at the end of the week. It takes yeah. a concerted effort. Yeah, yeah. So like, what do you think about these TV, theater, well, I'll say theater trained um, actors who are very recognizable, um, who have started to do voiceovers. Like, I mean, I see it all the time um, with Pride and Prejudice or these classics that get read now by Jake Gyllenhaal did The Great Gatsby, for example. Um, you know, do you feel like it helps amplify the voiceover community, especially with audiobook narration? When you do have that kind of, um, well, you don't have a face, but that kind of voice, does it help maybe satch, does it help filter? Um, well, filter is not the right word. Does it help show the other side of acting is what I'm trying to get at. Like having someone of that notoriety, does it help other voiceover actors um, explain what they do? I had a response to you, but now I feel like I'm not sure what you're asking. <laughs> oh no, what was your response? Well, I was going to say that um, I think it can be good to to have celebrities doing uh, audiobooks and that it does bring people, listeners into the audiobook world who, who wouldn't otherwise be interested. I mean, some of the first audiobooks I listened to before I ever started doing audiobooks were narrated by celebrities. And I think the reason I bought them was because they were narrated by a recognizable name and voice that I could point to. Um, and I was fortunate in that these celebrities were good at doing mm -hmm. audiobooks. Like Jeremy Irons reading Lolita is fantastic. It's one of the best audiobooks I've ever heard. And then some of Steve Martin's work that he narrated himself. I think he does a great job. David Sedaris narrating his own work. Um, yeah. So yeah, and I think there's there's enough work to go around. The business is big enough now that I don't feel like celebrities are eating up all the jobs. Thank goodness for us, those of us who make a living in audiobook narration. You know, when it's the bulk of what we do. So yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. So it's not the same as say, you know, there's debates in the Broadway community all the time about star casting, for example. Like we need to put someone in the marquee. So we're going to pull. And I think they're all very talented people who have to go to Broadway, but it's not, so it doesn't have the same resonance. It seems in the audiobook community, like the debate yeah, about I, the marquee star. Yeah, there's, there is some of that. It, it exists in the audiobook community. Um, that I don't think it's, um, a horrible nuisance, at least not at this point. Um, so I want to go back to the last part of your question, because I'm curious, what did you mean about the other side of acting? And did I touch on that at all? I'm, I got confused. Yeah, no, no, I, yeah, the other side of acting, just about like how, how transferable, there we go, how transferable was it going to Ithaca? We'll use, you know, your studies um, to go both from, you know, performing in classic repertoire. Um, was it a drama program that you went to? Was it a musical theater program, which is very different? Um, which program did you train in 
at Ithaca? It was the BFA Musical Theater Program, which is very much an acting-based program. Okay. Okay. That was one of the reasons I, I picked it. Um, the I was surprised the the musical side of it was kind of lacking when I was there. I thought it was very acting based, which is oh. which is good. Yeah, yeah. So there wasn't a lot of sight reading. Not a lot. Okay. A um, but yeah, there's many who've graced the Broadway stage who don't know how to sight read. Um, but okay, so you went to a musical theater program. How did, you know, going now into your journey into audiobook narration, what from your program have you taken with you? Like, what do you think prepared you the best for what you do now, right? This is now Michael Crouch's journey into the audiobook narration universe moment. There's, there's so much I, I carry with me that I, that I still use. I mean, at, audiobook narration is a type of acting when it, comes down to it. Uh, so it's all about, you know, infusing the, the dialogue with intention that goes straight back to acting 101, listening, doing your preparation, but also working from your gut that goes straight to all my scene study classes um, at Ithaca and beyond. Um, also, um, the International Phonetic Alphabet, IPA, which I learned in voice and speech class, I, I will write IPA in the margins all the time to transcribe a pronunciation. Oh, wow. Um, and, and, and when I'm learning a, a new accent, IPA is very helpful. So many things. Um, there's this technique that we learned at Ithaca that I don't, I think is very widespread, but I find it very helpful. And I haven't rehearsed this, so I'm, I'm not probably gonna articulate it in the best possible way. Was this, this work called Rasa Boxes, where it's about kind of embodying, like jumping into the shape or the energy of an emotion or it, finding it in your body and your breath before you even open your mouth. Hmm. And um, I find that each sort of rasa has its own name, like Sringara is essentially is pleasure, um, Karuna is grief. And I will often, if I'm trying at the top of each chapter, I like to identify the active or emotional energy at the start of the chapter, kind of as a place to anchor myself and start out. And sometimes I'll write, if it's a, if it's a sad energy or something, I'll just write Karuna up top and I know exactly what that means. Uh -huh. And to me, that's, it's more helpful than just writing sad, because back to acting 101, you don't really act emotion. But if, to me, that word Karuna identifies the sort of the type of energy that I can dive into and ride when I open my mouth. That's what it means to me. Yeah. So you mark, okay, so we'll use bathhouse, for example. How do you find out that you've booked? Well, I'm assuming you have a good publicist or not publicist, a good agent who helps you now find this material. Well, I, I do have a voiceover agent, but actually they don't represent me for audiobooks. Um, oh. they, they could, but um, really 97% of the audiobook connections I've made have been direct. It's, it's been handled 
solo. Okay. Um, so you're a free agent, technically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So how did Bathhouse come to you as an example? Well, I, so I have a relationship with the, the publisher, Penguin Random House. Um, I've been working with them for years. Actually, the first book I ever did was for Penguin Random House, first audiobook I ever did. Um, and so over time, they have a team of executive audiobook producers. Um, and I've gotten to know them over the years. This one guy, the producer of Bathhouse, Aaron Blank, I'd known him for a long time. We met at, first met at, well, a coach I worked with gave me his email and I introduced myself via email. Hmm. And we finally met in person at an industry event and um, we kept in touch over the years and eventually he started to have jobs for me, um, which was great. And Bathhouse was one of them. So I, that was one case where I didn't have to audition for the project. The uh, Aaron, I, I, I believe what he did was sent a sample of my work to the author, PJ Vernon, PJ Vernon, right? Yeah. PJ Vernon. Um, yeah. 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 Um, and PJ was like, yep. Okay. I think he's good for this Pyron. So that's how that came. Oh, about. so PJ did actually, I'm trying to remember when I interviewed him, but I do remember him saying, cause I brought up, that's how this all started, Michael. But uh -huh. I always listen to the audiobooks for whenever I'm featuring a book club feature, just because my other team member reads it and I like to have that other experience. Just because mm -hmm. audiobooks have become part of my um, headspace since I feel like I can find more hours to do that. Um, like, I remember listening to these violent delights as I was doing laundry, for example, just because it had gotten to a very intense moment. Um, well, the whole novel is very intense, but I got into one of the um, unraveling moments at the end of the novel. And I'm in like this basement laundry room thinking, wow, what a great space to be doing this. But um, okay. It's interesting though, because I know some authors do vet audition, we'll say, do audition the voiceover actor, like they get a sample of different voices. Do you know that process? Like, have you, is it like an audition where you go to another round or is it not necessarily like a casting call audition? It depends. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So one way of, of the casting process is the way I described to you before with bathhouse where they'll just, they won't do auditions. They'll just send the author a sample. Most times, if not every time the author needs to approve the casting at least. Um, so you, I usually can assume I'm going in with the author's blessing, even if I haven't interact with interacted with them directly. Um, other times though, the producer will say, we're doing auditions for this one for whatever reason. Uh, so I'll, they'll send me some sides, like, a you know, three to five pages or something, maybe five to seven minute sample to record. And, um, they'll send that off to the author or, or whoever has final casting approval and they'll make the decision from there. Uh, it's rare that there's another go round of auditions. It's usually just the one sample and they make the decision from there. Um, although for my very first book. Um, I did audition for it and, um, I think they could, they could sense that I was new 
which made sense because it was I hadn't done a book before. And they did give me some feedback and said, could you try it one more time? And I did it a second time and then I got the job. So that was one exception to that one. What was your first book that you read? It was a Western of all things, uh, Louis L'Amour Western. Um, They were look, I was right for it because it was a first person narrative. Um, The uh, protagonist was a 17 year old and um, I do a lot of, I voice a lot of younger characters. And at the time I was like, I think I was 20, 29. So I was still young um, and sort of still youngish now. Um, and also it, it was a character with, uh, with a Southern dialect and I grew up in Texas. And so um, I can pull out the Southern dialect pretty easily. And so I, so I was a good fit for that part and mm. it led to my first audiobook job. Yeah, my aunt loves Louis L'Amour. So that's very funny. Um, <laughs> I think like four or five Louis L'Amour at this point. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll have to ask her because she listens to the audiobooks of Louis L'Amour. So (laughs) she might have heard you. Um, Okay. Well, even with the dialect, because that's a question I always have when I listen to um, audiobooks is like any acting, you have a propensity for where you grew up. Like Obviously, I have a very Northeast dialect and grew up in Jersey. And like I can pass for Jersey, New York easier than I can pass for Texas, for example. That would be a very, you know, intense acting process. So do you feel the same way? Like, is it, I mean, you have voiced Northeastern characters, right? I mean, um, you've voiced all different dialects. Like what are some examples that stand out to you that maybe were a tougher process just from the acting side? Where, where the, uh, the, the addition of the dialect or accent made it more difficult? Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, there, there are some that come more easily to me and, and others that, that are harder. Like one that came more naturally. I did this book with a lot of Russian characters and hmm. I was able to pull out a Russian accent pretty fluidly. And it, and it wasn't, it, it actually made the process a little bit easier. To, it was a way to, an easy way to identify some of the characters. Well, this character has the accent. We'll just slip into that. Bam, it's clear who's talking. Um, other times, oh, what are some harder ones? There have been many. Uh, uh, that well, the Norwegian character in Bathhouse was tricky. Um, mm. And then um, there have been some, like sometimes I've been asked to do like a Spanish accent, not not for the main narrative, but just for incidental characters, maybe a, a supporting character. And uh, that's one that I would have to study first. That's not one I can just whip out. Um, yeah, and then there was a character recently that has Swedish accent. That's I had to listen to some samples beforehand, and okay, this there's this signature sound. I'll apply it here. I'll apply. I had to get technical about it because it it's not something that I can just do. Mm-hmm. So those definitely come up. Yeah. Do you think that it's not easy? Because I I don't think anything is easy when it's a process, but. Do you think that having the, like your expertise in audiobook narration 
and your background in theater, especially like your training for all different types of theatrical experiences. Do you feel like it's actually easier to get at a character through audio than it would be say on the stage? Like say you had to do that Russian character on the stage and your body is immersed in it. Do you think one is easier than the other for a process? Well, the, the, one of the most exciting things about audiobooks is I so often get to play characters that I, I wouldn't play on stage or on screen. Um, and in some way, I mean, I've been doing audio, working in voiceover almost exclusively for a, over a decade now. So I, I'm one thing that I love about it is that I don't have to worry about what I look like when I'm trying to find a character or get a readout whatever movements I need to make with my body, with my face, gestures, whatever it takes to get the read that I want out is fair game. Hmm. So there's probably weird gestures or facial expressions I make in the booth that I couldn't get away with on screen or on stage. Um, so I, in that way, I think it's easier. For yeah. me at least. And you're not typecast either. Like, yeah, I mean, you're not going to play a 17 year old on the stage, sorry to say, Michael. Um, but it's so wonderful that you can embody those characters. Like that's such an exciting process because all of the different psyches you get to embody, like must be really, um, I mean, is that what keeps you going back to these projects? I assume is the different, um, lives you get to live. Yeah. That's a, that's an exciting part of it. Uh, the thing that's special to me about it is just I really enjoy the intimacy of audiobooks. How I can be in this quiet space in front of this sensitive microphone and and navigate through the text and react to the text on my own terms and every little breath every little shift in inflection is, is captured on the mic. Um, so I, I just, I, I think it's, it's, I try to, I'm aware that people will end up listening, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but I try to tune that out when I'm doing the job. I try to just make it about me and these characters and I have this experience and it happens to get recorded for other people to hear. That's kind of the perspective that, that helps me do my job to the best of my ability and enjoy it. Yeah. And like for your process, cause I'm coming from like, yes, I have a theater background, but you've seen um, who I am and my profile. I'm a literary scholar. So I always come at, even if it is through acting, I come at it through the literature first. Like I'm interested in the themes, the you know, allusions to other literature. Like that's how I would get at a character. And I know that's not a process for every actor is, you know, to draw up and literally trace out the plot and trace out the themes and trace out like who was the author reading and all of that experience. But I am curious, like, do you go into the literature a lot? Like, have you like done an analysis of a book before you even get into the character. Like just read the book and think, oh, okay, this is what this author is doing. Okay, how am I gonna approach it now as the character? 
Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. That's a good question. I find for me, it, it is helpful to have an awareness of the themes, the bigger picture, doing an analysis on that level. Um, you know, yeah, I'm familiar with that from school and analyses like that in college. And it is helpful to have that kind of awareness, but I try not to get too deep into that because I, I can't act the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. I can only act moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. So it's more helpful for me to focus on the details of each scene and just write it. And if I trust that, if I trust both the author's words and my instincts, instincts, then those bigger picture things will unfold naturally. And I won't, it wouldn't, it's not so necessary to pin them down in my head beforehand. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. It also makes sense, like, in the sense of why, like, if an actor is playing a role that has been done countless times, and you have so many examples of it in media, they don't like to watch those other examples, because they're not going to find their way in, they're going to try to find the replica, right? Or you start to feel kind of, um, you know, backed against the corner in a way. So yeah, that makes sense. I'm, do you ever have an author who wants to direct you? Or is that just not something that happens in audiobook narration? It, it doesn't happen very often. For, so for most of the projects I've done have been with publishers. So I like some of the publishers like Payne Random House, Simon and Schuster, Harper Collins. And so I'll inter interact with the audiobook producer. Mm -hmm. And rarely will I interact directly with the author. Usually the the producer will will speak with the author directly uh, and then relay any information that could be useful to me to me. Um, and if it's a case where there's a director a director, then the director will be that that middleman between me and the author. Um, Sometimes though, an author will uh, want to visit a session and sit in. Uh, it's, it's pretty rare, but it happens. Uh, I did one recently where there had been some issues. They had, this was the sec their second attempt at producing this audiobook. The first go around didn't go so well. So the author wanted to be more hands-on mm. the second time around, understandably. And so this is the first and only time this has happened. He sat in on the entire first day um which ended up being fine but i was anxious as fuck i mean i was just so i was so nervous to have the author in the room the whole day but ended up going well thank goodness yeah yeah i guess it's would it be similar to um well no it's not similar because i was going to say would it be similar to the book writer of a new production but no because the book writer is always in the rehearsal room um so yeah, it is interesting though, because that is a difference, right? It's not like it's not like an author, the author of a novel is the book writer of a production, like of a script, right? It is a different terrain. Um, 
right? Because the author of a novel most likely probably won't come from a theater background where they've been writing scripts. Yeah. So yeah. That's, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, not all authors are, are very well acquainted with the audiobook format. Some are. Um, and it can, it's just, um, it can be tricky because I, I want them to love it, uh, obviously, but uh, I can't reproduce the way they've been hearing the, these lines in their heads for years and years and years. And some authors understand that and are able to let that go when they see me do something a little different than what they were expecting. Um, but others are not. They're very, they, they want it reproduced the way that that they are hearing all the words and i get it but you you can't produce good art that way you just can't yeah yeah well and you're creating a new adaptation as an audiobook actor i feel like i see it the same as when a novel gets turned into a film you know it's another medium like exactly. it's not going to be the exact same um like Gregory Maguire told me he had to let go about Wicked when he first saw the workshop of the musical. He's like, this is the source material, but it's not the novel. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I feel like that's a healthy place to be just as a creator in art. But another question I do have, because I found I find Under the Rainbow to be one of the most fascinating audiobooks I've ever listened to because of the vignette style and because there's multiple performers and I love it. I think it is such a wonderful way of getting at each character. And it's kind of like Bathhouse. There's, you know, you read one of the character sections and then please, oh, I forget the other actor's name. Daniel Henning. Thank you. Um, you know, reads the other uh, first person account or first person point of view. Um, is that a process you really enjoy? Or are you even really aware of the other voice of the other actor and what their process is? It depends. So for, so for Under the Rainbow, it was a larger cast and um, it was a project for Penguin Random House and they always hire directors for their projects. So we had a director. So in that case, I didn't need to consult with any of the, of the other actors beforehand. I trusted my director, who had been working with everyone, to guide me in the right direction for any character voices or whatever with the read to make sure that we it was everything was cohesive. Uh, so in that case, having a director for for multicast projects is is very helpful. Um, in other cases, we. Um, We'll all try to sync up on an email chain or something and, and um, make sure we're all on the same page with character voices and things like that. Um, so we do interact if, to, to make sure that, uh, that the production is as good as it can be, that it doesn't sound like we're all in completely different worlds. Yeah, but you don't have a read over, a read through. You don't read through the novel together in a room. Wow, uh, if only. No, there's really? no time for that. There's no time. Uh, okay, so why I, is there no time? That's a good question. Oh, good Lord. When I 
so I got my first audiobook, and yeah, I'm from a theater background, and you know, this is tons of material. Audiobooks are long. Um, and this was going to be a seven to eight hour audiobook in the end. So I, I thought we would really take our time with it and do a little table read, you know, do like maybe 50 pages a day. Um, but no, no. You go in, you do, and you do it. You go in and you work as efficiently as possible because studio time's expensive and people's schedules are tight. And uh, that's just how it goes. So this, so like, let's take that first one, for example, like nowadays I would, we'd probably book, it was like seven and a half to like almost eight hours. So we would book two and a half days for that a 10 to five recording day each day, and then maybe 10 to one, 10 to two on the final day to wrap it up. Um, in the beginning for that first one though, since it was my first, they took it easy on me. I had a whole extra day. So it's not like you have a week with the material before you start recording. Well, you, you may have it on your own before okay. you start recording. And I, I will take time to prepare and read the book. Um, then do what I need to do to walk into the studio prepared. Um, so in, on that level, I can take my time, usually. But when it comes to actually doing the work, there's no rehearsal process. There's, you just, you go in and you do it, you do it well and as efficiently as possible. Yeah. So when you make mistakes, what happens? Because I'm sure words get flubbed. Oh, yeah. You cough, you sneeze. Oh yeah. There's all kinds of coughs and nose blowing and burps that have been edited out over the years. Mike, you just probably you could fill a whole audiobook of that stuff. It's amazing to me what engineers have to listen to in their headphones. Um, but yeah, thank God for editing. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, it's a godsend. Um, yeah, I, I screw up all the time in the booth. Um, or I, I could maybe if you know a take came out that I thought was good, okay, but I know I can do it better, so I just do it over again, and then they have that better take, and they splice it all together and make it sound as seamless as possible. Wait, so like, how long is a average day of you recording usually? Uh, uh, roughly ten to five, with with a lunch break thrown in, and wow. and smaller breaks as needed. Yeah. That's really tiring for the, yeah. for the process. Um, but do you listen back to all of that audio that you just recorded or is it up to you as the performer? Do I listen to like the raw audio? Mm -hmm. The raw I've audio. Usually no, I, I would, Usually, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to get out of my head sometimes to begin with. And if I were to listen back to work that I had just done, no, mm -mm. that's, that's not going to help anyone. Um, and I'll, yeah. I would probably end up nitpicking to the point where I would hurt the performance. Uh, thank goodness. That's not something I have to do. Uh, if it is a project that I'm recording from home where I have that freedom to listen back, I, I, do some spot checking to listen back, make sure I, things are sounding good to my ears. But I try not to do it right away. 
I try to wait at least a day mm. and then listen back. Yeah. So when you say you redo takes, okay, so you don't mean the take of the audio. You mean in the moment, I just said something and I think I could deliver it better. Yeah, of a, oh, of a okay. particular line, of a sentence or um, a line of dialogue, something like that. <clears throat> okay, okay. And then once it is all done, do you actually go to Audible and listen? I'm sure you get sent a final copy of the audiobook. Um, or, well, do you get sent a final copy of your audiobook? Uh, if I if I request one. Oh, okay. Usually they'll, they'll send it to me. Okay. And do you like to have Michael Crouch playing in the kitchen as you're cooking? Uh, well, not on speakers. I, I may <laughs> listen. So I do like to listen back to to some of my work. It's it's helpful for me. Mm. Um, one, if it's a project I'm proud of, yeah, I want to listen to it. And I, I, I've audiobooks are hard, and it's a lot of work. So uh, sometimes I do want to take some time to just enjoy the work that we put into this production and just be like, yeah, good job. Other times, it's, it's just helpful to learn for me to break down like, okay, mm, no, that didn't work right. Next time I'll try this, do something a little different here. It helps me to hear what's working and what isn't. And I do the same thing with, with other narrators. I, I listen to audiobooks, not just ones that I do. Um, yeah. And it's helpful for me to hear what other people do and what as a listener works and doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. It must enrich your process. I mean, it's like, as a writer, you need, you need to read other authors and genres in order to get to that creative idea. Mm -hmm. um, right. We can't just be in our own silo. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. yeah, I don't think art <laughs> works that way. Um, but like, as we're, Finishing, I mean, I'm learning so much, Michael. I'm so appreciative of you explaining this process because, you know, audiobooks have become so popular, but there isn't a lot of conversations with the actual actors, you know, or there's not a lot of interviews always. And I think it is such a, um, you know, such a large area of acting that doesn't really get talked about a lot. So I appreciate you bringing, you know, literally your voice to this experience. Um, but is there any, and it doesn't have to be a specific author you remember, but have you received a lot of feedback? You know, we're gonna go in the positive realm, especially in our current times, <laughs> nothing negative, <laughs> but you know, has there been a lot of feedback once the audiobook is released where an author will reach out to you or you'll have some kind of, you know, relationship after the project's finished? Yeah, that happens. It's always a wonderful thing if an, when an author reaches out after listening and, and they're really happy with it. A special one for me was Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, book mm -hmm. by Becky Albertalli. Um, that was one of the first ones I did. Like, I think it was like audiobook number seven for me. And it was definitely the first one that got attention. And um, I remember I, I've, I've saved it. She wrote me an email after she listened. I don't think we'd interacted at all at that point. And, and just, she was so, uh, she was really happy with it. And, and she, was, she sent me a thank you letter basically. Oh. And it was very, 
it really touched me. And and we've kept in touch over the years on social media and or the rare email, but it's um that was an, a good example of a, a new heartwarming connection. I she has a special place in my heart. Yeah, well, and what uh, longevity with that novel, especially because of the Love, Simon series. Oh, the film, then the series. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just so nice, though, that you do have those moments just because, like you said, an author, some might just be too, you know, they have a special relation with their work, but it's wonderful when they, I'm sure he'd reach out to you like the way she did. Um, yeah. So I think, well, definitely my final question is just, is there any myth you can debunk or something that the public thinks about audiobook narration and actors that you want to, you know, break the myth right now for all of us? Oh, I don't know. What do they all think? I'm not sure. Um, well, I think a lot of them think about what you've talked about in depth, which is I think a lot of them actually think that the author has a lot of creative time with the audiobook performers and the actors. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, well, that is often not the situation for for whatever reason. Um, it's out of my hands. Uh, there there are some situations though where I smaller publishers or uh, or self publishing authors who will reach out to me to produce their audiobook and we will interact ha have more direct interactions. And um, wh when I was talking before about sort of uh, the that wariness of working with authors. Most of that is coming from my anxiety and desire to please the author. Mm. Um, there have, I really can't think of a single author horror story that I've experienced. They've really been overwhelmingly positive, even when I'm working directly with the author. They, they've, they've been great. Um, but it is, it can be nerve wracking. Uh, just because we want them to be happy. We know it's, it's their material and they, they care about it. And, we want to do it right. Yeah, yeah. Right well, and I can tell you from all the authors I interview, most of them don't even, they don't want to listen to their full audiobook, which makes sense in my mind because they're not approaching it from what you're doing, which is the acting process. They're approaching it from, this is my work that's now being read. And now I have to listen to my work being read. And I'm going to nitpick what I wrote, which... You know, it's like a very deep connection, but I'm always surprised when I hear TV and film actors say they don't like to see themselves on TV and film. And I'm thinking, but okay, it's an interesting process just because I do think it's helpful to see yourself because you can, I mean, yes, maybe you're going to start second guessing everything you do on the screen, which isn't helpful if you have an anxious mind. But I do think it's helpful to see how others interact with you. But, mm -hmm. right, there is no one process. I think that's what we're taking from this. There is no one size fits all rule for acting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it can be tricky because 
it's when it, in terms of listening back to myself, I, I don't want to listen, get back and start getting self-conscious and get in my head about it. Um, and thankfully I've done it enough to where I can nudge that part of my brain aside and, and learn from it and maybe even enjoy some of the past work that I've done when listening back. Um, but yeah, there, there are times when it, it, it can be rough listening back or, or watching yourself on camera or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I have to listen to all of the podcast episodes for editing purposes. So, you know, I know my voice very well, but yeah, I think you're always going to have that second guessing voice in your head. It's this human instinct. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, one great thing that I've of a freedom that I found in that is I've listened back to stuff where I remember in the studio, I just did this one part over and over again. It was so frustrating. I felt like it wasn't landing. Nah, nah, nah. I was all a mess in the booth. And then a couple months later, I go back and listen to it. And I'm like, what's the big deal, Michael? It sounds great. You know, like it's what amazing what a little space can do. Yeah. Sometimes when you're wrapped up in the moment, you know, that tortured artist takes over and it, it just, you, you, that's when it can be helpful to uh, have a second set of ears around like a director or yeah. an engineer who can give you an, an educated, uh, some educated feedback. Exactly. Well, and it's like, even when I interview, there's sometimes where I know I'm trying to wrap my brain around questions and like where I want things to go. And like, I know what it was like in that moment, trying to work my way through the angle of the interview but when I listen back, I'm like, wait, I don't even hear that process, but it's so internally within myself. So mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying. Um, yeah. Okay. So where, well, first, where can everyone follow you, Michael Crouch? You know, your social media persona. Well, I'm on Twitter at, at hello MLC, my initials, Michael Lockwood Crouch. Uh, same thing on Instagram, same handle. Yeah. I have to ask, yeah. where does the hello come from? Cause it's just such I mean, a I, unique Instagram. I, I created that. I mean, before I, I was supposed to be like a professional platform, it, which is what it's basically become now. I, I mean, I was like, let's create a, a Twitter username in 2012 or something. I was like, hello, my initials. <laughs> and that's, that's, what it is. that's the backstory. Okay. That's it. Um, and then any like upcoming releases that you're really excited about, like audiobooks, we should definitely tune into that you have coming out in the spring or summer. Uh, one just came out at the, the first of March. That's a, f a favorite of mine, a book called Groundskeeping by Lee Cole. It's a debut author. <laughs> Wonderful book. Um, and coming up. I think I don't I don't know when it's released. Maybe in the summer. I did another Animorphs book. I've done a few of those books. I know that those are popular with youth in the nineties. So some people have a special relationship with that. Um yeah, I got some good ones coming up that I oh, good. recording later this month. So uh Yeah. Yeah. I will release the news when I'm get get the go ahead. Okay. Okay. Oh, and Golden Boys was released, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was like in February it came out. 
between them. Or, but yeah, yeah. That one's and I think now. and I think that's another with multiple actors. Mm-hmm. Four. Four. Okay. Oh, great. Okay. Well, I'm going to be listening to you a lot again, and I'm assuming you're probably going to be recording some authors that I've interviewed again. Like you'll be recording their books again. Maybe we'll see. Uh, yeah, you're being a little wry, but that's okay. I know you can't talk about projects that haven't come out yet. Um, but thank you so much, Michael. This was just a really, ex- just a really informative interview. Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate your interest. I, I do. I, I love what I do, and I, I enjoy talking about it. So yeah. thank you for asking. Of course, and it comes through. So, um, yeah, everyone, look up Michael Crouch wherever you listen to audiobooks, and you're going to see his whole repertoire. Um, Okay, thank you, Michael. Have a good day. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or join as an ivory tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And we, Mary and I and the whole team, hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and you know, have you all join us in the ivory tower boiler room next week. Bye everyone. Bye.